When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 185 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Sully Erna from Godsmack, I want to remind you about the last minute shopping ideas that you can find in the store at mistresscarry.com. Hoodies, t-shirts, tank tops, pint glasses, coffee mugs, a seven-in-one bartender tool, beanies, trucker hats, visors, and even ornaments for your tree and baby onesies. There's something for everybody in the online store at mistresscarry.com. My guest this week is Sully Erna, the lead singer from Godsmack, who first made his appearance on the show on March 3rd of 2021 on episode 39, and who also wrote the theme song, War Drums, for the Mistress Carrie podcast and my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. Sully and I have been friends for over 25 years, and with the band announcing that their latest album, Lighting Up the Sky, is most likely going to be the band's final full-length body of work and the release of the new documentary, I Stand Alone, The Sully Erna Story, telling Sully's life story up until the release of the debut album from Godsmack, which, by the way, celebrated its 25th anniversary this year. There is a lot to talk to Sully about. He and I went back and told the story of how we met and some of the crazy stories from the early years of our friendship and some of the stories behind some of the band's most iconic songs. 
We talked about Godsmack getting a record deal, the influences, his songwriting process, and how much we have both been through together in our respective careers over the last quarter century. His life story is something to behold, and the new documentary is available on Google Play, Amazon Prime, and on Apple TV. If you haven't checked it out yet, I've got the link and the details in the show notes of this episode. 2024 is going to be a huge year for Godsmack with their new Vibes Tour hitting the road in February. More dates are getting announced soon. He's one of my oldest friends in music, and we have been through a lot together. And the future, well, it's bright for both of us. So allow me to reintroduce you to Sully Erna from Godsmack. Mr. Sully Erna. That's me. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Happy holidays. I appreciate the attire. Thank you very much. My <laughs> ugly Christmas sweater. Just wore that for you. I figured a little Christmas spirit never hurts with some satanic, you know, mixed in there. I read an article about Ozzy recently that said, even though he was partially responsible for inventing the term heavy metal, that he was never comfortable with the label. Oh, he said that. That he felt pigeonholed by it, then he just considers the music he makes rock and roll and kind of all of it fitting under that umbrella. I'm like, you literally invented a genre. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I know that they were banned from Europe for, what was it, over 10 years? Because when Tony Iommi came up with um, the song Black Sabbath, that minor chord he went to, the the Catholic churches in Europe would not allow anyone to write a song that had that progression that went from the major to the minor because it just sounded evil and they deemed it satanic music. <laughs> Gotta love it. It's why it's his music. It's why it's still around because yeah. it's so good. Yeah, Satan doesn't die. <laughs> and he makes <laughs> and he makes fantastic music, let's be honest. Yeah, he died once, and then he's now, you know, dead living forever, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, I got you at home. It's yeah. almost the holidays. Almost. I've been to your dad's house for Sunday dinner. What are the traditional Erna holiday things? What food, what music, like what says holidays to you? <laughs> I could I could speak for what I'd like holidays to say, <laughs> but unfortunately, I've had a very dis- dysfunctional life, um, and you know my family is just scattered because ever since my mom originally moved us out of Lawrence, Massachusetts, back in December of '85, from that point forward, you know people just kind of branched out. So now my mom is in South Carolina. My aunt and uncle is in North Carolina. My brother's in Kentucky. My sister lived in Atlanta. My other sister lives in Boston. My dad lives in Massachusetts. So I, unfortunately, you know, we don't have that like big family, everyone under one roof kind of holidays. It's like bouncing around and you mix that in with 25 years of touring and, you know, not always being around for the holidays. It's just, it's always just a crapshoot. Like some years it's misfits holiday, which has been my family, my friends. And we gather up at someone's house and, you know, make food and listen to tunes, have some drinks and shoot pool or whatever. 
And other years I travel and I'll visit mom one year or, you know, Skylar another year. It's just always broken up. You reference the early part of your life. People have a chance to actually see that played out now in this documentary. Mm. And for anybody that hadn't read your book, The Paths We Choose, you started working on a documentary a few years ago and you had asked me to get interviewed for it. And then I never heard anything. And then all of a sudden, like a few weeks ago, I get this rando text message from you at like 11 o'clock at night. And you're like, hey, by the way, that documentary that you're in, it's out here. Check it out. Let me know what you think. And I'm like, what? Yeah. So now people can see the quote unquote kind of dysfunction that you're talking about because it's a movie. Yeah. How are you feeling about once again, having all of your childhood trauma kind of out there? Well, it's not all of it. It's a little blip. So (laughs) (laughs) the, um, the, the feature documentary that they've been working on, it's been six years in the making. That's why it took so long. And the reason why it took so long, first of all, is because, as you know, we grew up in a similar era. Um, back then, we're talking about, you know, 70s, 80s, even some of the 90s. We didn't have cameras on our cell phones and, and accessibility to cameras in general. They were, you know, this big. Um, so a lot of the stories that were told from my life growing up in the streets of Lawrence from the time I was born until I got a record deal. Um, there's a lot of those years just don't have footage to support the stories. So we had to really be careful about how, you know, we reenacted these stories and, and, you know, whether you just find stuff online, generic, you know, scenes that match the, the theory of the story or whether we actually had to shoot that content and make it believable enough. So it wasn't cheesy. Cause a lot of those things can really come off weak, you know? So it, that, that was what took the most time was just trying to have visuals to support the narrative. Right. Um, but yeah, so it, it's a feature documentary. It's called I stand alone, the cellular and a story. And um, it's on, you know, platforms now like Apple TV and um uh amazon prime i believe uh google took it there's there's more coming but um it's starting to get out there and it's basically a blip of my book and the book is really a blip of my my real life right because you can only fit so much information in 90 minutes and so the documentary is 90 minutes right but it's based on 30 years of my life pre-godsmack so hard to do, but, and then you kind of have to find the thread that weaves through the whole story and that kind of thing. And like, what is the story? Like, what are we actually putting out on this documentary? And it became about, you know, perseverance, really. I think it's a story about perseverance. It's about one, one boy's journey growing up in some very challenging <clears throat> times, <clears throat> excuse me, very challenging city um, and going all you know, through those obstacles to try to survive and then make something yourself. And music really became the thread that saved my life so many times and and got me to where I needed to be in in life and with my career. But getting there is just a real motherfucker, right? Because we, (laughs) it's really, 
you know, I, I think people underestimate how hard it is to make it in this industry. You know, and I, I probably believe maybe actors and actresses go through the same thing when you're out there and you just have to starve yourself and sacrifice everything and focus with blinders on to get there. So it's really, you know, it's about that. So um, it's not the Godsmack story. It's about my years from the time I was born until I got a deal. And it kind of, it ends, you know, as things are starting to, to go in the direction of finding my record deal and my career. A couple of years ago, I was at one of your shows and this kid came up to me and he was like, I play Sully in the movie. And I oh, had no cool. idea what the hell he was talking about. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, you met him? Yeah. So he called. Yeah. And I was like, Sully in the movie? I mean, obviously I knew you were making the documentary. I was interviewed for it, but I didn't know you were doing flashback kind of reenactments. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, cool. And <laughs> then I watched the documentary. So you send me that text at like 11 at night and you're like, check it out when you have a chance. By the way, you're in it. And now I'm like, that motherfucker. So now upstairs, it's midnight. I'm like, where is this movie? I stayed up <laughs> half the night because I wa- I couldn't wait because I wanted to see it. Yeah. And then I saw the kid and I was like, oh my God, that is the kid that played Sully. He does a yeah. really good job. Yeah. He was very, um, he was very timid. It was his first time ever acting, first of all. Right. So I called up a good friend of mine, Angela who uh, is the owner of Boston Casting. And she helped me assemble the cast for the people that I needed to support the main stories that we were talking about in the documentary. And I liked his look a lot. His hair looked just like mine when I was younger. It was all frizzy and curly and crazy. Um, But he had never acted, right? So I was like, ah, man, this is going to be tough. But he really stepped up and he just kind of followed great direction and he did a good job. And I, I was really happy. And of course, I'm going to be the most critical about the reenactment stuff because it was my life. I remember the scenes. I know what they looked like. I know how they played out. I know the emotion. But to get these kids these days, um, you know, because some of those really gnarly stories in the documentary were, you know, based on the 80s, for instance, and we were teenagers. So we had to find kids in that age group. But the difference is, is that when we were teenagers, we were fearless and we were tough. And, you know, to get kids today who are growing up in a much different generation that are not so confrontational and things like that, they couldn't even believe some of the stories when I was directing them. You know, okay, here's the deal. I pulled out a shotgun. I pointed it to this kid's face. This dude came down with me on a knife. And the kid's going like, what the fuck? That happened? Like, (laughs) are you serious? This is ridiculous. I'm like... This is all based on true shit. Like you're going to have to get. And so we're trying to recreate these fight scenes and things like that. And these kids just, they weren't angry enough to deliver it. So we had to keep shooting it until we're like, you got to think about a knife coming at you and what, you know, the fear in your eyes. And so it was interesting to kind of direct the new generation, but I got to tell you, I'm real proud of all of them. And they did a phenomenal job and, um, for me to be convinced of the, the the recreation footage, you know, says a lot. I mean, it, it's about as close as to how I remember it in real life. So people will get a good perspective on that stuff. Having grown up in Massachusetts, obviously I'm familiar with Lawrence in that time, but I grew up in Lemonster, which was different. 
Um, yeah. A little less dangerous, just as blue collar, but a little less dangerous. But I met you in the spring of 98. Oh. When, when my radio career had kind of just started in that early Godsmack, like playing club shows, right when Rocco pulled your demo out of the bin. Like when we were both. Oh, wait, though, wait, we got to correct something you're saying, oh, though. Okay. We didn't meet when your radio career started. We met right before you even got the gig. Well, no, because I was already at AAF. I just oh. wasn't on the air. Oh, because when I met you, I remember you were you were working on some crew at, at Loco Bazooka. Well, I, so the years between when I was, got out of college and when I started on the air, I worked on the AAF street team after interning for three years. So I would drive the van, help move gear at AAF uh, shows. Makes sense. Pull CDs for the DJs, like whatever, minimum wage, three seventy five an hour. Yeah, yeah. Be, but I was on the payroll. Three seventy five an hour. <laughs> and obviously I couldn't pay my student loans off. So I was working as a tech at the same time. There were times where I got to double dip because I'd be there for the AAF street team and I'd get paid to be on the crew as a roadie. Right. But those years up until the spring of 98, I was mm -hmm. working at AAF, but I wasn't on the air yet. Right. So my radio career was fledgling, we'll call it. And then you invited me to dinner. Well, hold on. So you're skipping ahead. Don't take charge of this interview, Mr. Erna. <laughs> I just want to make sure we're not skipping. Oh, the, no, the we're food. not going to skip the dinner. Don't worry, because uh, we got to tell that story. So <laughs> watching this movie and watching your upbringing, you're only a few years older than me. So like all of the references, the fashion, the style, what you guys looked like, I was like, oh, my God, that looks like every metalhead I knew in high school. Yeah. And what I loved about the documentary, I loved a lot about it, but one of the things I loved about it was that it was like getting in the Wayback Machine, like, doo-la-loot, doo-la-loot, because all of a sudden, all these faces that I knew from early in your career, mutual friends, even to the point that Ian helped to do the video stuff, who had worked with me at AAF, I was like, it felt like I was watching a family reunion in a way. It was really weird. Yeah. So that, the part of your life up until I met you at AAF was really a mystery to me. I had heard all the stories, but it was one of those things where it was like, was it really as bad as they're saying? And then when I watched the movie and saw all the corroborating witnesses, I was like, holy shit. Okay, wow, that is really what happened. Yeah, no, it definitely happened. And it was a rough, it was a rough childhood. But, you know, I still believe that, and I know you feel the same way. And hopefully everybody believes these things, no matter how hard life is, you know, because I had my life and it could only be a fraction of how hard someone else's life was. Maybe my life was a lot harder than some people's. Maybe it wasn't as hard as other people's. But I do believe that all these experiences that we have is really what kind of molds and shape, shapes us into the people that we become today, right? Because we have two paths we can choose. 
um, which is you can continue down that path of drugs and violence and gangs and crime and all that. And you know where that's going to lead you, either dead or in jail. Um, or you learn from these experiences and you grow to respect life and to respect people and to respect the things that makes us you know, better people in general. And you pass that wisdom on to your kids or to your friends or to the younger generations, you know, and try to just help them go that when they're in it, you know, we get it. You're going to make mistakes. And right now it seems fun and you want to steal something or you want to smoke weed or do drugs or whatever. All we can do is share our experiences and help them to understand what the um, consequences are. Right. Cause that's what my mom did for me. She never told me what to do and what not to do. She didn't like the shit I was doing, but she always just kind of gave me a choice. And she said, okay, cool. You want to smoke cigarettes? You're 14 years old. Well, here's the pros and here's the cons. Now go make a decision. At least, you know, the information. So that's what I feel like my job is now. It's why, you know, and we don't have to get into this too deep, but it's why I started the scars foundation and all that. It's because that's where my experience lies is within mental health within addiction, bullying, all these things that I experienced on the streets of Lawrence is now what I have all this wisdom for and experience. And I want to be able to share that to help other people get through times where they're really struggling. Are you at a point in your life? Also, hold on. I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling this angle on the, I'm going to change it. Okay. I like that better. Now I feel like I'm straight. I don't, I don't like this angle, like this, this Dutch, what do they call it? The Dutch angle. You never you want know? to be shot from below. It's like below. the angle your father and your mother uses when they're talking to you on the iPad. Yeah. And you're like, yep, I'm looking I up your nostrils, Ma. Yeah, I don't need to see that, Ma. Can you just, you know, put it down? Plus, the older you get, it's an unflattering angle, too, for pictures. You never, <laughs> you never want to shoot from below. You always want to shoot from above. I do have some really amazing skin tightening cream for the neck, though, I will just say. You know, 55, you got to start considering that shit. Well, you know, um, are you at the point in your life now at 55, looking back at all of the decisions, all the hard times, all everything? Are, do you have any regrets at all? Or are you completely at peace with where you've gotten and what you had to go through to get there. Cause that's, it's a really hard place to get to. It is. I, I, and I, I, for the most part, I don't, right. Because again, I feel like if I hadn't gone a million miles an hour, I did all my experimenting and was as tough as I was <clears throat> because those times really prepared me for how tough life is. Right. And if I was just, everything was handed to me and everything was a yes and everyone gets a fucking trophy then when you get into the real world and you get fired from your first job or you don't get the job and all those kind of little things, like it crumbles people these days. Like they don't know how to accept disappointment. Those experiences prepared me for disappointment, which is what most parents don't do today, right? You don't want your kids to fail and you're not encouraging them to fail, but you got to at least educate them on disappointment. So they're prepared for it and know how to handle it. So do I have regrets? No. Do I have regrets? Yes. Because <laughs> there's some things that I wouldn't have changed the path of my life because I really do love who I've become today. But there's some events that I have regrets about. There's some people I hurt along the way that I wish I knew better then and understood kindness and caring more. 
um, physically hurt people, you know, those kind of things. I don't like living with that stuff. And, you know, I've had to learn how to forgive myself and understand that it was just part of my environment, part of my mentality back then, part of my survival skills, my defensive mode. Those are the kind of things you had to have in Lawrence or you would get your ass kicked every day. You know, there wasn't a day that went by that we didn't have to carry some kind of weapon on us because there was so much conflict with gangs and racial tensions that you could be walking a block away to go to the store for your mom to grab milk and you walk around the wrong corner and there's a group of Puerto Rican kids there or something like that, you know, or someone, another race that isn't yours and they don't like white dudes or whatever. And all of a sudden you're in a situation, you know? So I just remember being scared all the time, even though I, I was a tough kid, but you know, you always have that sense of fear because you never know when four five, six guys are going to walk around the corner and then there's just a situation and it's for no reason. It's just because that's how people were back then. When you watch the documentary, after I finished it, I had so many questions about some of the people in your past before I knew you and whether or not you were able to make amends, reconnect. Has the book and the documentary coming out allowed that closure, forgiveness? Have some of those people reached out to you or is it part of that accepting that as your past and you, it's just kind of left because you were very, very careful and I appreciated it that you were careful to protect the people from your past to let them live their lives and not drag them back into a story that's supposed to just focus on you. No, not so much. I mean, for the most part, everybody who's in the documentary, the real people that, you know, that do the um, interviews um, are still in my life and have been since those days. So, you know, unfortunately, as you can see, when the, when the film ends, there's a pretty good list of people that had, that didn't make it, that passed away. Um, and one of them being my best friend, my whole life, Freddie Cristaldi, who um, was alive when we started filming this and doing it. Luckily, I actually got a pretty good rough cut of the whole film that he was able to see just me, him and Jimmy, my other best friend in the movie, um, got, you know, to see it together here at my house. Um, and I'm so glad he got to see it because soon, very soon after that, he passed away. Um and and there's been there was a lot of other people, you know, that were in this documentary and the stories that were told that that weren't around anymore. Um, you know, and the only people that I don't really communicate with that um, that were in the documentary were probably a couple of my past ex-girlfriends. One of them uh, passed away. The other one uh, is married with children, living you know a happy life somewhere. So. But the rest is still in my life, you know, and they're they're there for a reason. I mean, I think if another thing the story shows you is that there is a incredible amount of loyalty that we have here in New England. You know, I think people know that about Boston people in general is that um, we're very loyal people, you know, and uh, once you call someone your friend and love someone like that deeply, it you know, they're there for a reason. They're there because they've earned that loyalty. They've earned that trust over the years. And these guys have been in my life for 40 years now. So 
it's it's and we still all live within miles of each other for the most part. So it's it's really cool to look back and it's a very um, gratifying thing for me to, you know, to be able to have is these people in my life and still have us be so close. One of the things you and I have in common is a shared Sicilian background. And for me, Mm -hmm. it's only part of my background. But for you, obviously, it's a lot more. And you talk about the loyalty of New Englanders, but we also hate to the death. And that's also part of our Italian and Sicilian heritage, too. Once you cross us, it's really hard to get off the shit list. And one of the things that I took out of the movie is the forgiveness and the closure, even within your own family unit, which gives to me that hope that you were talking about, which for anybody that's ever had estrangement in their family, which I have as well, um, that forgiveness and closure is hard. It's hard, man. I mean, me and my dad didn't talk for a long, long, long time. And I know that he's had a little bit of a rough time with the documentary just because, you know, it's never fun to be the bad guy at first. But I hope what he's seen in that as well is that even if he doesn't remember all the times that we've mentioned, that there's a reason why we didn't talk for so long. There's a reason why him and my mom didn't make it. There's a reason why they didn't speak for decades It's because the things that happened, they weren't good. They weren't good for a young kid to witness. They weren't good for a wife to experience. Um, But over the years, we've rehabilitated those relationships. And now we have 25 years of great times behind us. And it's why I wanted him in at the end of the film to show that, like, that stuff is over. That's the past. That was just part of our story. But there's so much love and care in the family now. And even my mom and my dad, by the way, first time ever, I've seen them together since I was four years old was at the Fenway show. when we opened up that MGM hall and you were there, my mom and dad were there and they were in the VIP room together. And I got a picture of me and my mom and my dad for the first time since I was four years old. So 50 years I've never seen them together. I walked around the corner into that VIP room and saw your parents in the same room. Yeah. And and if you could have captured the look on my face, I was like, is anybody else seeing this or am I hallucinating? Yeah. It's, it was, it was an, it was a great, great moment. I'm glad we got it. And, um, and I'm glad to see that and feel that too, because I want that relief for both of them. I know that he has a lot of regrets from the things that they did back then. My mom probably lived with a lot of tension and anger and, you know, um, resentment and things like that. But it's so nice to see them, you know, get past that because they need that too. That's why my mom had to tell her story. Like she's held that in for so long, you know, people have the right to share their story, but you know, it's just, it's not fun reliving that, you know, especially after so much time has gone by. And I, you know, they have to also remember too, that we all grew up and realized that they were just kids when they had us, they were in their early twenties. They didn't even know how to be parents yet. So you can't hold that against someone forever that he was a a dad who hit or had a bad temper or, you know, maybe just didn't teach the right way. He didn't know any better. He was a young 20 something year old kid, right. An immigrant from another country 
that, you know, probably had a hard life with his own family growing up and how he was taught and how he was disciplined. So in the end, it's like, you know, how do you hold on to all that stuff and still like not forgive people when you realize that, you know, they were just kids themselves trying to figure life out. I can tell you what it's like on the other side where my dad and I were estranged, as you know, for like 20 years and he passed away before we were able to reconcile. And it's one of those things where you just kind of have to accept sometimes accepting how people are is incredibly hard to just Mm -hmm. allow that that's the path they want to choose and they are willing to accept the repercussions and ramifications of their choice. And yeah. you've just got to let them, even if it's a bad choice, Yeah, it's like, if that's your choice, then that estrangement's hard, especially, you know. Well, you got to make sure that you're prepared to also live with it should something like what just happened to you happen, right? And yeah. then you don't ever have that opportunity again to reconcile your differences. Right. And I think, you know, for us as people, I think it's a good thing just to do for yourself because you need that that weight lifted. You need that clarity. You need that inner peace. You know, I know I didn't want to live with that anymore. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I, it was my 30th Christmas. I woke up on the floor. I was staying, this was right before the band got signed. Um, and I was still living with a friend of mine in his basement and uh, I had a dog and I woke up on the floor of my bedroom in the basement next to my dog with an empty bottle of Jack Daniels (laughs) and hung over as fuck on Christmas morning. And I don't know why, but I was just like, today's the day I'm gonna go deal with my dad. I'm going to his house and we are gonna fucking have at it. And we're gonna either clear the air or I'm gonna say my piece and hopefully he'll understand if he doesn't, then I'll leave and we never have to worry about speaking again. But when I did it, I was surprised to see who I knew once as this kind of aggressive, you know, man growing up was just there to listen, cried, accepted everything I had to say. And I said, you know what? My goal today is just to get all this out because I need to. And hopefully when this conversation is over, we can get up, give each other a hug and start rehabilitating this relationship. It won't happen quickly, but it's the first step. And it went really well. And from that point forward, we've had a great relationship. I had, minus the Jack Daniels bottle, that exact kind of same thing. And my situation went the opposite way. Oh, that's too bad. So thus, like, the acceptance of, that's your choice. I said my piece. You want to live your life the way it is. That's, you're an adult. I can't make you act like one. So you do you, boo-boo, as they say. Yeah. Well, now you know the difference is not that you'll ever have that opportunity again, but if you run into that situation, the difference is whiskey. (laughs) Choose whiskey. Isn't it always? (laughs) Nothing gives you liquid balls like whiskey. One of the other things that I loved about the documentary is it's a time capsule and a how-to on how to break into the music business without the internet. Oh, yeah. Wow. You're right. Yeah, because it does cover once we start getting into those years, as we get closer to the band forming, 
<clears throat> and how we were, um, you know, gig planning gigs or, and, and, you know, getting the information out in general to, to be able to, you know, let people know that we're a band and we're playing and all that stuff. Yeah. That was, that's just so it's analog versus digital, right? It's so manual. Like I remember we, when we really started to go, okay, we have something going on here. We should, cause if it, it started as an experiment, it wasn't even supposed to be this. Like I've been a drummer my whole life. And then all of a sudden I put the drums down and I decided to be a front man and we were just doing it to record. I mean, me and Robbie would just, we weren't even wanting to play music anymore. Seriously. We would kind of defeated from band after band after band, not making it. And, um, and so when we started it, we were just like, Hey, let's just get some guys together and record some songs and we'll do some gigging, like take it lightly. So who was to know that it was going to do what it did. But um, those early years were just like every, you had to do everything. We would literally get to re- would work all day. We'd all have regular jobs and then we'd get to rehearsal at seven o'clock at night would rehearse till midnight and then go home and sleep and be back up at six in the morning to do your job. And, um, and then even on some nights on a Friday night, we, you know, we finished rehearsal at 11 or whatever it was. And then I was in my car driving to Boston because, you know, corn or somebody was playing on Lansdowne street. And I'm thinking it's a good opportunity. It's, it's a rock crowd that I can fly all the cars. So we would print like a thousand flyers and stick them on everyone's fucking windshield that we were playing, you know, a TT the bears in two weeks or, you know, access or wherever it was, the rat. And um, that's kind of how you got the info. There was no internet. There was no, you know, just doing it on your phone or buzzing it on your Instagram or whatever. You had to literally print, make flyers. First of all, you had to make a flyer that you thought looked fucking cool. That was, that was a challenge in itself. Just trying to like figure out what does the flyer look like? And then you go to, you know, wherever the local stables or something was and rip off a thousand of them. And then, you know, you're downtown at one in the morning, just, you know, handing out flyers and shit. You got to have a friend that's artistic or you that <sighs> meticulous cutting of magazine letters and totally. everything looked like a ransom note. Yeah, ransom note or the pictures, like I would steal a picture of some like old guy with a beard this long that was in a loincloth holding up water and he looked like some religious figure from National Geographic magazine and I'd cut it out and photocopy and it'd be like, God smack the rat June 12th. And it's just like, I cut his eyes out or whatever the fuck, you know? So <clears throat> anybody Oops. that doesn't know what the rat is, it's basically Boston CBGBs. Ah, yeah. Long totally. rested soul. Damn it. Now I'm on. Again. I got to go plug in. Look, I'm just a mess. Hold on. <laughs> We're doing this. It's just going to be a quick switch of the background and a little plug-in of the iPad, and we're back. <laughs> you're, in your, you're in your kitchen now by your fancy cappuccino oh, machine. Yeah you, yeah, you can't see shit because the camera's all fucked up, but I am in my kitchen. Okay. So when, when the band finally records the infamous demo, yeah. the, the $2,600 cheapest debut album in rock and roll history <laughs> is it the cheapest I, I don't know but I, I i i hazard to say that there is an album that was more profitable from what it cost to make to how many copies that sold 
Show yeah. me an album that sold more copies that cost less than the debut Godsmack record. I think maybe the Boston album. Was less than 2600 I don't know what the cost was, but I know it was their demo. And I wonder what that backstory is. So if you ever get an interview with one of them, maybe you ask that question. That's a hell of a demo. Yeah, that's a hell of a It still till today holds up to today's like production. It's crazy. It comes up all the time, like greatest debut albums. Yeah. And that's in the top five ever. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's got to be a good one. I, I, and back then, you know, the cost of recording all that was so much cheaper. So I wonder what they, I mean, it could have been a home thing because no one Schultz, he's an electronic genius. So it may, maybe it didn't cost them anything. Yeah. Then they win. Yeah, they do win, but but it's a hard trophy to take because a $2,600 demo with minor tweaks turning into the debut album from Godsmack that just celebrated its 25th anniversary is kind of insane. Yeah, yeah a lot of people don't know that, and we still get asked that question because even though it's been out there for a long time, it really is that the first record when you buy it is re is really the same demo that we recorded for $2,600. It's just that when we got a deal from Universal, we got a little bit of money to go back into the studio and we just remastered it and changed the artwork. But they're the exact same recordings that we did in a basement at New Alliance Studios in Boston for $2,600 over a weekend. We tracked that whole record in three days. It's just crazy. Yeah, we weren't expecting any of this. And as a matter of fact, if you remember, the the hit song, whatever, wasn't even on it. So that came after, and we had to record that song, mix it, <clears throat> master it, and then it was on its own separate CD with a little white paper sleeve, and then the, the CD was already selling at Newbury Comics, the, the hard CD, so we just they elastic banded the extra additional CD to the hard CD. And that's, so when you bought the whole record, you got like a bonus song. And that song was actually the song that kind of broke us through. So anybody that's listening to this, that grew up in new England, that listened to WAF, the radio station that I talk about in the documentary knows this part of the story, but you and I have careers now that have taken us outside of new England. Mm -hmm. So in the interest of, including everyone else in our 25 year friendship. Now I want to go back to the point where Godsmack records the demo and I'm working at WAF applying for every job that I could mm -hmm. seven and a half years being in the building, couple radio degrees under my belt, just trying to get a job. And I never imagined being a DJ myself, I always thought I would be like the producer of the show. So I applied to be Aunt Opie and Anthony's producer because I thought, oh, well, Howard Stern's got Robin. Opie and Anthony could have a female producer. I'm the purple haired chick roadie that, you know, has got a wrench in her pocket, doesn't mind getting her hands dirty. I could figure it out. Yeah. And this is the time that you guys are releasing the demo. And... Rocco, who we reference in the documentary, was the night jock at WAF. Yeah. And he had moved up from Florida, making his DJ career in strip clubs. So he had that graspy voice, this big guy that, you know, just had this bombastic personality and voice to go with it. And 
he saw your demo, there was always like a laundry bin in the promotions department at AAF. And bands used to send their demos in all the time. And one of my jobs as an intern was to open all the mail. And all of the demos, we would take a rubber band with the handwritten letter or the ransom note flyers of the bands playing these local gigs. And we would put them like in this laundry basket. And Rocco was famous for walking around the halls of AAF. Nobody really, it was a big deal if you had a locked office. Otherwise, you had a cube that was open. (laughs) And he was the guy that would steal shit off your desk. He would go through everything in your office. And he's (laughs) the one that found the Godsmack demo. Yeah. And out of all of the songs on the original Godsmack record, minus whatever, Keep Away was the song that he was like, what is this? Oh, I like that song. Did he call you to tell you he was going to play it? Or did he just start playing it and then you found out from a friend that Keep Away was on the radio? Do you remember? Yeah, I don't know if I remember if he contacted me first. I think he did, though. I think he did. I think I remember him reaching out and saying that, you know, hey, I listened to this demo and I really like the song. I want to stop playing it on the nightly news. And then I told the rest of the band, because that was another thing is to listen to the nightly news. It didn't start until 11 p.m. I think it was 11 p.m. Right. And so we had to stay up late just to wait. And it was usually on like halfway or all the way at the end of the show or something. So it was like, we're just dying because we know we got to get up for work at six in the morning and we're waiting for the song to come on so we can hear our song on the radio. But yeah, he was the hidden hero behind the whole thing. And again, another person who is no longer with us, but you know, I, I definitely had to make it a point to let people know that he was a big part of our path because you know he was really the guy that stepped, stepped up for us. The nightly news was a feature because I ended up taking it over when we changed day parts and I got my first on-air job. But the nightly news was a play off of the 11 o'clock news on TV. And it was like a half an hour of all of the really new, hot off the presses songs, the new singles, the new albums that came out. And all of the bands, the, the, the signed bands, like, oh, you got on the nightly news. Like, you made the cut of the best new music out there right now. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. AF was a big deal, man. And it was like, it's still, you know, was just it's just this incredible station that I just wish could have hung in there because you guys were so influential countrywide, you know, nationwide. It was just so well-respected. And so many people followed the lead of AF and what you guys were playing and that kind of stuff. You guys were real trendsetters. And uh, it's just too bad that most radio has disappeared and the ones that are there you know, aren't, aren't doing the same thing that, that you guys did, you know, and BCN also was a good station for that. They, they supported local music. Um, So that's the part I'm talking about. It's like, you know, now we have the internet or whatever. So all these stations kind of bailed on helping local bands, but they really should reinstate that kind of stuff because, you know, there's still an audience out there. It may not be quite as large as it used to be, but, it's still just another platform to get young bands heard in their areas. And that's how it starts. I mean, if people want to know how we did it, we just kind of, the only way we knew how to do it was to just keep playing the local area. We'd pick like a 60 mile radius 
and we would just keep circling the same clubs until our audiences went from 10 people to 50 people to 200 people to packed. And, you know, it took us three years to build that, but <clears throat> kids today are a lot more impatient, you know, they want to click a button and be famous. And uh, I don't know how, maybe that can happen. I just don't know how to do it in that world. <laughs> yeah. So keep away starts getting played in the nightly news. And at that time, I had started as like a part-time DJ on the weekends mm. and on the air, like sit, all the shifts that nobody else wants to work mm. early in the morning, Saturday morning, you go in there hungover, the overnight shifts, like working on Thanksgiving, Christmas, like the shifts, nobody else wanted to work. That's how you broke into radio at that time. And I had applied to be the aforementioned Opie and Anthony's producers and I didn't get the job. But in like the end of March, early April of 98, when they told me I didn't get the job and I had been at the station for years, they were like, do you ever think about being a DJ yourself? And I was like, no, I just always thought I was going to be a producer. And then Opie yelled at me, smart me <laughs> up. I went back and said, yes, I did like eight weeks as a part-time DJ while still being a roadie the whole time. And I was on tour in Virginia Beach in a hotel with my beeper. And I get a call on the hotel room phone because my I always told my parents when I was on the road where I was going to be, what city, what hotel room, so that if they needed to get a hold of me, because we didn't have cell phones. And the hotel room phone rings and it's Dave Douglas, the old PD from AAF. And he's like, hey, Opie and Anthony got fired. Oh, shit. We're moving Rocco from nights to afternoons. We're thinking of putting you on the air at night. What do you think? And I'm half asleep, was up tearing the stage down till two in the morning. And I asked him if he was smoking crack. <laughs> and he says, no, and don't ever ask me that again. Like, idiots. <laughs> and... I, Cause I'm in shock. Like, how did this guy get? He, come to find out, he had my phone number from my payroll records, three seventy five an hour. Called my dad. My dad gave him the phone number of the hotel, and I'm waking up to the boss at AAF offering me a full time job, and I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" And he's like, "Boston's freaking out because Opie and Anthony are getting fired or got fired. Can you be on the air tonight?" I'm like, dude, I'm in Virginia Beach. He goes, can you be on the air tomorrow night? And I was like, yes. I don't know how, but I'm going to figure it out. So I drive back up. I have a meeting with him. And he's like, everybody in Massachusetts hates us because we fired Opie and Anthony, the most popular DJs on the station. Just go in there, accept the hate. Rocco got their job. I got Rocco's job. And he sends me in the studio and he's like, figure it out. And Rocco yeah. is on the I air just it. fielding the hate calls. And at seven o'clock when the show was over on my first day, Rocco handed me the Godsmack demo, the original all wound up demo, which I still have. Mm -hmm. And he said, you're going to get a ton of calls for this song, Keep Away. And he had it circled in marker on the back of the album. And he's like, you got to play it two or three times tonight or they'll hate you even more. 
<laughs> because he had been playing it and you guys had started to get all of these requests. And so mm-hmm. my first night as a full-time professional DJ, one of my orders was to make sure that I played Godsmack keep away two to three times because they were like, they'll hate you even more if you don't. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait, did we fucking skip the magic meatballs? No. Will okay, you good. stop rushing? I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm anxious. Linear thought, Mr. Erna. So you and I are now in this weird parallel in careers <laughs> when we still didn't really know each other. Mm. That I'm trying to get this DJ thing to go from being, I'm filling in and nobody knows what's happening. And you are this big local band trying to get a record deal still. Mm-hmm. And the needles moving and the Godsmack albums selling out of Newberry Comics and selling at your gigs. And I'm like, okay, well, this is the biggest band around. Rocco introduces us. He's like, I want you to come to some Godsmack shows because he was going to all your shows, probably because he could get free drinks. Mm-hmm. And he's like, come, I want you to meet the guys. So I go to one of the shows. This was probably in, I don't know, maybe May or early June. And you guys are like, do you want to introduce the band? And I was like, on stage? And you're like, yeah. So the first band I ever introduced on stage ever in my career was Godsmack. Nice. Then we would hang out and talk about our fears, our uncertainty, how you and I were so close to getting what we always wanted. Mm -hmm. And we could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea if it was a train or daylight. Like we didn't Mm -hmm. know what what it was. Yep. And you had just bought your new Harley. Mm -hmm. And I I was living with my parents at the time because I had no idea if this job was going to pay off. And I had gotten a cell phone at this point and you called me and you were like, you want to go off for lunch? And I was like, yeah, cause I worked at night and you were like, all right, I'm coming to get you on my bike. And I'm like, I'm in Lemonster. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah just give me the address. Probably map quested directions at that point. Cause that's what you <laughs> did back then. Fucking map. Yeah. Like the paper map you're pulling over in a rest area to <laughs> figure out where you're going. And you show up at my parents' house in Lemonster on the motorcycle you just bought. I remember. And you're like, where are we going? Where can we get good Italian food in this town? I'm like, I got you. So I took you to this little family-owned place called El Camino that's still open. And nice. we're due for a trip there. I wondered, I wondered about that. Yep, they're still open. So I get on your bike, we go. And you and I are sitting in the, the restaurant's almost empty. It was like a Tuesday and we're sitting there and we're waiting for our food and we're talking about what are we going to do if this music career doesn't happen? Mm-hmm. Because we had both put everything at like my roadie gigs. I had started to turn them down, but I hadn't signed a radio contract. There was no guarantee that this was going to be my career. And you were like, that fucking Harley, I don't know how I'm making the first payment. <laughs> if I don't sign this deal, I don't know what I'm going to do. And do you remember the bet? 
I don't. So we're sitting there and I, anybody that knows me, you and I are different in this case. You like to gamble big and I don't. So anytime I ever bet anybody, it's always for a dollar. It's just about the bragging rights. And I said, I'll bet you that within the next month, you guys sign your record deal. You guys are getting a deal. It's going to happen. I'm 100% convinced. All I do is hear about Godsmack in the offices of the radio station. Everybody's talking about you guys. Every show sold out. I'm like, you're going to, and you were like, what do you want to bet? And I was like, a buck. I'm only betting you a dollar. And you were like, okay. And he goes, I'll, I'll take that bet, but you know that you're going to sign your radio contract too. Like, it's going to happen. And I was like, okay, maybe. Like, I wasn't convinced. And you were like, no, like, you're doing a good job. The audience likes you. All of my friends like listening to you. It's different. It's edgy. You're a girl. Like like that knows about rock music, like, and you and I had this two and a half hour support group, pep talk, talking each other off a ledge. Like at one point you were hanging off the bridge, jumping, I pull you over, then I get over and I'm about to jump. And it was one of the craziest experiences of my life because we were both at the exact same place in our careers, but in completely different positions. Mm-hmm. And we, we ate meatballs. We had raviolis. So mm-hmm. it's the magic meatballs, the magic raviolis, and we shook on it. We shook over the meatballs. Over the meatballs. It was kind of like on <clears throat> on Liar Liar when he blows out the candles on the cake and his wish comes true. It was like we shook over the over the meatballs and they were magic meatballs. Yeah. So I. <laughs> go to work that night, keep doing what I'm doing. And about a month later, you call to tell me that this is actually, this is happening. Mm-hmm. Like God smack signing the deal. And I was like, cause I, you know, I love to be right. I was like, I fucking told you blah, blah, blah. And the first time I saw you after that, we were hanging out and I went to leave. You guys always made sure you walked me to my car like after those late night Godsmack shows at the clubs at like Salisbury Beach, you always made sure you walked me to my car. And I was like, hey, you owe me a buck. <laughs> and you were like, are you fucking, you're really collecting this dollar? And I was like, oh, I'm collecting it. So you reach in your pocket and you got this sweaty, balled up dollar, like whatever. <laughs> I was <you>, still broke. <laughs> huh? I was still broke just because yeah. I got a deal. Probably pissed that I was taking a dollar out of your pocket. I was fucking mad. And you pull out the Sharpie and you signed it for me. And you said it, it's the best dollar I ever spent. And you signed it for me. And I kept it. Shut up. I have it. Shut up. It's framed in the other room. You want me to go get it so I can show it to you? All right, hold on. I want to see it. I want to see that shit. (laughs) I was wrong on my quote. It says, to carry a dollar well spent, now we're even. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Damn, dude. Nice job. Isn't that crazy? I don't, I don't think shit like that, but good for you. I am one of those people that find sentimental value in everything, and I save everything. 
And sometimes it's hoarder behavior. In this case, it's not. That's huge. And within about a month after that, I got offered my first radio contract. Yep. And everything changed because of those meatballs. Yep. It was all about the meatballs. People underestimate the power of Italian food. (laughs) Total mistake. Great story. So the, I didn't even know a lot of that information. You don't, you didn't remember the, you don't remember the dollar. I can't believe I don't you don't remember, remember the, the dollar. I don't remember the bet part. Yep. But there it is. Proofs in the pudding. And I have documented evidence that I took a dollar out of your pocket, which anybody that knows you knows how hard that is. Yep. <laughs> it's true. It's a true story. I love it. So one of the other stories I want to talk about happened a little bit later. So at this point, Godsmack is Godsmack. Debut album is huge. I had moved up closer to you. And I get enough. It, it all, I always get these late night calls from you. That's just bizarre, which is why the call about the documentary was not completely unexpected. Uh-huh. And I, I was living, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes from you in Methuen, which is the town right next to Lawrence where you grew up. Mm-hmm. And you call me one night and you go, hey, are you home? And I was like, yeah. You're like, I'm on my way. I was like, "Uh, okay. You wouldn't tell me why, wouldn't tell me anything. You're like, I'm on my way to your house. I go, okay. And you showed up in the big red pickup truck. (laughs) Do you still have that truck? Oh. You don't? Get rid of big red. So you show up in the big red truck and you're like, and I thought you were going to come in. And you're like, come out, get in the truck. And like... It could be anything. You just don't know. With you, it could be anything. So I'm like, fine, I'll get in the truck. And you get on the highway and you're like, look, the band's in this place. We got asked to write a song. I got to submit it tomorrow. And I need you to listen to it. And I'm, I'm asking you to be honest with me. And I was like, okay. And you pull out this Sharpie written CD and you stick it in the CD player. And you're like, this song could make or break my career. So don't fuck around. I need you to be honest and tell me what you think. I go, okay, you get on the highway in the truck. You're going as fast as the truck will go on 495. And I hear the riff of I stand alone. And you're like, it's for a movie. If it sucks, it could kill our career. So I listen to it. The song fades out. I take a breath to tell you what I think. And you go, shut the fuck up and listen to it again. (laughs) I'll tell you why later, but go ahead. (laughs) So you get off the exit. You get on 495 going the other way. You hit play on it again, and I listen to the whole song again. You're playing drums on the steering wheel, but you're not asking me questions, and I'm just sitting there listening. (laughs) You pull back into the parking spot outside of my condo, the song ends, and you just look at me with this look, like fear, anger, anticipation, excitement, and you're like, hope, "Hope," and you go, shame, (laughs) and you go, well, say something. And I'm like, I don't know if you're going to fucking tell me I got to listen to it again. I don't know. 
And I, and I said to you, it's going to be huge. It's, it's exactly what you had to do. I love it. It's going to be huge. Do you remember yeah. that? I do, word for word. And it's now the name of this documentary, which is... I see what you did here. I like it. I like how you circled this whole interview back to the back. Hey, I got you. I know, you're good. No one's going to question that. <laughs> good job. I will tell you, though, why I made you listen to it twice. <clears throat> when I got the call from Chuck Russell, who was the director for The Scorpion King... <clears throat> they were looking for a title track for this movie that The Rock was going to be in. It was really going to be his kind of breakout role, hopefully. Yeah, there was a world where The Rock wasn't a movie star. Yeah, yeah, this was the first one. I mean, he was in some other stuff, I think, probably, but this was the one he got his first lead. It was supposed to be a big movie, and it was the prequel to The Mummy. Um, so I had this piece of music that I had already written, but I had no lyrical content for it. So I told Paul, you know what? I have an idea. Let me, let me put it together, worked on it. And um, I brought in David Bottrell, who produced the Tool albums. And um, he really liked the song a lot. So we demoed it and I sent it to Chuck Russell, the director, and he loved it. And I was like, okay, good. But it was just a rough demo, right? So then we get it into the studio for real and we track it up at uh, Longview Farms. Longview Farms, right? Yeah. yeah. That, that and, place uh, comes up on the show a lot because of how haunted it was. Yeah. There's a lot of rock bands in the late 90s and early to mid-2000s recorded there. Well, even before that, right? The Stones, oh, everyone yeah. was there. It's been around for a while. Cool place, though. But um, <clears throat> so then we track it for real. And of course, when you ever, you know, when, when it's game time and you get into a studio versus what you do with demos, Things change on the fly all the time, right? So then we start adding harmonies. It's the first time we really kind of introduced harmonies in the band. At From that point, you know, backwards, the, I've always been the only singer in the band, really. The other guys don't have vocal strength. So, like, there's always been some overdubs and different things like that, doubling voices. But I've never really, really went into harmonies because I wasn't – I never considered myself a great singer, and I didn't know how to even sing harmonies, right? So – it was all self-taught along the way. But anyways, we, we track the music and we add, you know, the talk box. And then I sing in this chorus. And then, you know, David's like, we should really put harmonies on these lines. And so we start harmonizing. And um, <clears throat> then I get the song mixed. And I remember I'm in some dude. I don't even remember where I mixed that song. It was in some dude's house. I mean, I remember he had shit all over the place and kids fucking carriages and toys and little kids running around, his wife's yelling at him from the kitchen. Well, I, just, I don't even know where I'm at. But um, <clears throat> we mix it, and, um, and that's the first time, you know, normally when a band will sit back because you're hearing kind of the final blend of the whole song, how the audience hears it. And I'm just like going, man, I can't fucking tell if this is good or not. Like, I like it, but like, it was just so unique that I couldn't, I couldn't tell. We had never written anything like that before. So I called my manager, Paul, who was living in Medford at the time. I think I was in Danvers, Mass, or something like that. I'm like, you got to come here. I got this song done, and I just, I don't, I can't make a decision. So he gets in my car, well, my truck, I should say, because I had a really good system in that truck. That's why yeah, I wanted you to did. play people. 
Yeah. And that was my, like my reference stereo. Whenever I'd take mixes out to check them, I'd check them in that truck because I knew the system well. So anyways, he gets in the thing and we crank it up and the song ends and he does the same thing. He looks over at me and I go, and he goes, play it again. I go, fuck. <laughs> so like, and I had already played it twice, listened to it the first time by myself. And now we're listening to it, you know, the second time with Paul and we had to listen to it twice. Then I get at home and I'm having a little get together at my house and I have a few friends over there, some of my musician friends. I'm like, no song. I don't know. I got to play this thing. Same thing. We're sitting in the living room. We crank it up on my stereo. The song ends and they go, play it one more time. I'm like, everything's got to be fucking played twice with this song. I don't know what's going on. But it's like, now I look back and I realize <clears throat> that the reason the song did so well, it was because it was kind of like uncharted waters, right? It was like, it was a unique sound. It was a unique song for us. It was something that it was not on the radio. Like everything at that moment was kind of like, we were still in the grunge phase. We were hearing about the new metal phase, you know, um, <clears throat> well, grunge was kind of over or whatever, but, but this was early 2000s, right? 2002 we recorded that um <clears throat> so we were still you know corn and the limp biscuits and all that stuff were really like on top so this was like just a different sound and i think that's why it did so well when people heard it on the radio they probably were going like play it again <laughs> call the radio station you know trying to make a decision but you know that's why the song became our most successful song. It was number one for 17 weeks on the charts. And it really, really kind of solidified our career and put us on the map for real at that point. Everybody knew that song. I think it's really funny, though, for any Godsmack fan that loves that song to hear how much uncertainty you had. Because obviously, if you could have seen into the future, there would have been no reason to be uncertain. Yeah. But in the moment. Couldn't tell. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was a sound I had never heard before. So I go, I don't know if it's good. Like I was the first time I could ever say I wrote a song, <clears throat> which I can always kind of, I've always been good at kind of picking what I think, you know, a single would be. I just couldn't, I couldn't tell with that one. It was just such a awkward arrangement. The opening riff was something I'd never heard before. I had never played a riff like that like it was all on the the open e string and it was way up high above the 12th beyond the 12th fret and i i remember even writing the riff we were at soundcheck one day when we were still touring on the awake record i remember i don't remember where we were but i remember we were in an amphitheater and we were sound checking and as the guys are kind of getting strapped up and everyone's just noodling around waiting to do a song, I remember laughing with Tony and I was just like how come no one ever plays up way up here and like i just started hitting these notes and all of a sudden I heard something and I'm like, Oh shit. And we literally like took up the whole sound check starting to create, you know, the, the piece of music and that's how it all started. But it was just me fucking around going like, Oh, you know, uh, there's 12 notes in a scale if people don't know this in music. So on a guitar, the first 12 frets, you know, after that, it's the same notes just repeated an octave up. Right. So I was just like, oh, everyone plays within these 12 frets. How come no one ever goes into the danger zone <laughs> like way up there? And that's really what happened. So I don't know, man. It was just a very uh, 
it was it was one of those moments that I think you know there was just there was just something sent in you know from I believe that thoughts and music and art and all that stuff is just like kind of lightning bolts that pass through you and if you're not there to kind of capture it and document it they go away very quickly and that was one of them luckily that we were able to grab so it's just hilarious to look back now at both of our careers and laugh at how young naive scared uncertain Mm -hmm. and now 25 years later the debut Godsmack album you're now meeting the criteria for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That album now meets the criteria to be considered classic rock. Mm. Wow. And you guys just kind of reissued like on the bright orange vinyl, which is so cool. Yeah. The debut album all over again. It's kind of like this crazy full circle moment now. Yeah, it is. It's crazy to think that it's even lasted this long. You know, the world has gone through so many changes over the last 25 years. So who would have known, you know, when we were just a young band scrambling through the streets of Boston and trying to get gigs and trying to build a following that, you know, <clears throat> we were so in it. We didn't ever, I mean, we always wanted it to be like, you know, we wanted to be Aerosmith and Rush and whoever else and be playing arenas and doing big shows but I don't think we ever really thought it would happen, especially for me, because it didn't make any sense. I mean, at that point, when I started the band, I was 27 years old. I had been playing drums since I was three years old. So drums is what I had kind of felt I mastered. I was a, I could play a drummer, any band. But singing and being a front man was so foreign and I was starting so late. And I was just like, you know, I never thought it would do what it's done. So very... I don't know. Looking back at it, it's pretty, pretty cool success story. You guys are now issuing in a new era of the band. You just released the first set of tour dates for the Vibes tour. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in New England yet. I'm assuming you guys are going to play this tour at home at some point. Yeah, just because the first tour is in February and no one wants to be here in February. <laughs> So the next run will be April and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be hitting the Northeast. When you guys announced that you were going to kind of not put effort into full studio albums anymore, even my phone was ringing going, what, what the hell does this even mean? Like, are they not going to be a band anymore? Like, what the hell is going on? And you said something in an interview that I haven't talked to you on the show You haven't been on my show since March 3rd of 2021. So a lot Mm. has changed since then. Yeah, yeah. But you said something in an interview where you said that, you know, we, I always wanted to do music, but it's not the only thing I ever wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So now the band is going to start kind of changing the way you tour. What is this vibes tour? What does it mean? Well, the vibes tour is just, it's almost kind of like a break from the big show touring. Like we went out all last year and we worked a lot and it was the big show, you know, it was the show that we did in the arenas and the amphitheaters. And when we go out with the big show, as people know, we have this big double drum battle. We do this moving lighting and pyro. And it's just a big arena show. Like we grew up on when we were kids, it's the kind of show I always wanted to put out there for the people, but 
you know, as we get older, <laughs> it also, you know, the body, the body needs to heal. Right. And, um, so, but we didn't want to like take a break from when we wrapped up at the end of October until summer hits again, when they open up amphitheaters and we start doing these big festival shows or whatever, again, there's just too much of a gap there. Right. We want to be loyal to our crew. So we want to keep them working. And we also want to kind of stay tuned up, but to try to do those kind of shows in the winter, it just doesn't make sense. So we wanted to come back to what we did back in, it was like 03, 04, right? Right around the time we were doing the Metallica thing. Um, and we did an acoustic tour in theaters. And people have asked us about when we would ever do that again for so long now, almost 20 years it's been since we did that. So we decided like, why not, you know, do a couple quick runs you know, keep us tuned up, play some of the other stuff that we don't get to play on the big show. Cause the big show fires up. You want to like hit people and like make it the big, you know, rock songs, but there's so many cool songs that we also enjoy playing from our catalog that we don't ever get to do cause we don't have time. And um, so that this vibes tour is going to be, is it going to be exactly that? We're going to set a vibe in the theater, incense, candles. We're going to bring in some of the old memorabilia from other tours, like the gargoyles that we had on the Awake tour and the, the brass sun that we used on the Faceless tour. And we're going to try to decorate the stage with all these elements and um, hopefully take people through like um, the history of the band. So it becomes like really cool, vibey songs with some storytelling behind it um, that helps educate, you know, the new generation that's been turned on to the band um, and just give people a different experience of what else, the other side of what we do as a band. Um, so it won't be fully acoustic. There's going to be electric performances as well, but it's going to be a blend of all that piano songs, acoustic songs, electric songs. We're going to mix in some really cool vibey covers. I don't want to give those away because they're 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 we haven't done them yet for one practiced them um so we want to make sure that we can pull the ones we want to do off but i can tell you that it will fit in that same vibe of what we're doing with the voodoos and the serenities and the spirals and even some of the stuff on the new record like growing old and truth um and under your scars and all that stuff so we want to just create like a really cool night of music and storytelling i love that you were giving me crap that I saved this dollar from 25 years ago, but that you've got a warehouse with 20 year old gargoyles and a big brass sun and all the old touring stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. You know, <laughs> I wish we would have saved more. So back then we didn't think about even saving all the backdrops. I wish we would have saved some of the backdrops from the clubs and all that old shit, man. I would have loved to have had that hanging up in, in headquarters, but you know, we didn't think like that back then, unfortunately. So you were referencing the acoustic tour in 04. One of the other monumental moments in both of our lives and friendship was the acoustic gig that you played for us on Lansdowne Street with members okay. of the Red Sox after yep. they beat the Yankees in the ALCS. And yep. we're watching Godsmack Acoustic with the Red Sox watching them find out who they're going to play in that famous 04 World Series. World Series, yeah. That's when we get to meet Kevin Millar and Johnny Damon and all them. Yeah, it's exactly right. It was, it was, 
wasn't it the the night that was it the no it was the day after they won it was the day after they beat the yankees and they were they had gotten out of they had gotten back to fenway and they came right. across the street and they wanted yeah. to watch to see who was going to win the nlcs to see who right. they were playing in the world it was series up in Jillian's, right? yes yeah and we did a, yeah that's right yeah and we actually had Johnny Day. I have pictures of that. Johnny Damon and Kevin Millar on stage singing I Stand Alone with us. <laughs> and I remember watching you guys playing, and I'm standing leaning up against the bar, and Dave Roberts comes yeah. next to me at the bar, and I introduced myself to him, and I said, regardless of what happens in the series, you will never pay for a beer in this town again because awesome. of that stolen base. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I remember that. Good memory. And yeah. and it's just so funny how this is almost 20 years ago now. Yep. But these memories that, like, I can't think of the Red Sox winning that first World Series without thinking of that Godsmack Acoustic Night because we were all yeah. there with the team. Yeah, it's true. It was yeah. crazy. I do. I remember that. Yeah, what was our shortstop's name? He began with a P. The what? Our shortstop's name. Pietra. Oh, oh Pedroia. Pedroia, thank you. Yeah, he was the, wasn't he the second baseman? Oh, second baseman, right? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, Dustin. Petey, yeah. Dustin Pedroia. Yeah. Yeah, there was a bunch of those guys that were there. Yeah. The pictures are hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, um, good memories. So now that the band is kind of ushering in this new era and you said that there's a lot of other things in the world that you want to do. What does that mean for you outside of Godsmack? What's on the Sully to do list? What are, what are the new goals now? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm still thinking about that. I have projects on the table that I'm working through but, you know, just because we announced that this is most likely going to be the last full body of work that we do on an album, you know, I, I will start by saying you can never say never. We don't know. It's why we said most likely. Um, but if it stays that way, because we do feel that the decision is final right now, we do feel like it's the best decision for us to make. And in this world, we're not even sure it makes sense anymore to continue to put all this energy into a full album because I don't think people realize what that entails, man. It's a year of your life and then it's another 18 months of your life touring on it. So almost three years goes by like that. And, um, you know, I want to enjoy some other things in my life. My family, my daughter's coming into like a great place in her life now. She's turning 22. She's starting a career of her own. I'd like to be there to just mentor her and help guide her if she needs me. Um, and I want to do some of these other projects, obviously. But I think, you know, there could be some collaborations for Godsmack. There could be a single we might do, a one-off, just to launch a tour, for instance. Well, that's what um, I was going to ask you. A lot of the bands are weighing out the pros and cons of releasing a full album. And yeah. with streaming, it seems like a lot of bands are doing that kind of EP or just release a single kind of a model now. Yeah. And of course I'll, I'll continue to do solo music because I'm a musician. Like I'm always going to write music. I have a studio. There's, there's no way I'm not going to write music, 
And if that special song comes across again, and I really feel like it's strong, strong, then, you know, obviously it'll come out because I would want the world to hear it. I wouldn't want to know I struck lightning again and not release it to even give it an opportunity and share it with the fans. They would, I feel like I owe that to them anyways. Right. So if I'm going to write music, of course, there's a chance that, you know, things like that could start coming out. But I also know that right now, and I know a lot of the guys feel this way. Um, we just don't want to have this insane schedule that we've been on our whole lives. You know, it's been almost three decades now of just, you know, grinding. I mean, we, we very rarely took breaks, you know, nine 11 was one break that we took and COVID was another break. Other than that, this band has never stopped. And I just want to enjoy my house. I want to be able to travel a little bit without working. I want to be able to take some vacations, you know, just kind of be able to wake up and go, what do I want to do today? And not have to worry about, ah, I can't do it this week because I get press or I can't do it next week because I'm on tour. It's just kind of nice to have the freedom of like waking up like a normal human, having a cup of coffee, making some calls and just figuring out what I want to do today. And when the opportunities come to be able to jump on a plane and hang out with some friends in Florida or LA or go to Hawaii or whatever. I want to have the opportunity to do that because so many times in the past I've missed those opportunities because I was just obligated to a schedule. In a recent interview, Shannon was pretty open and honest about his struggles and overcoming mm-hmm. his struggles and talking about how it affected him personally and professionally It seems like everybody in the band now is in this really healthy place. What does it mean to you after those three decades that you guys have found a way to navigate the difficulties and that you're all in this place now where you've been friends for so long, you've made all of this music, gone through all of these hard times, but you've always managed to figure it out. What does that mean for you? Well, it means everything. I mean, it's probably some of the most proudest feelings that I have that I wear as like a badge of honor, you know, because there's so many things literally from the inception of this band into the very early years when it went from a local band to like arena band. That's a very tricky phase in someone's career. I would, I would probably compare that to a child actor that and then you don't see him for a while right because it's like that's a lot of fame to put on someone Mike Tyson you know was the world champion at 19 years old right something like that so I think it's a similar effect where like those years are the most challenging years Um, but and I don't know why but thankfully we had a good team around us and when we were going through you know, the egos and the hangovers and the addiction part of this career. And I don't know, everyone's trying to find their place. No one wants to be told what to do. Who's the leader, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and I'm just trying to steer the ship the best I can. There was so many times we were like this close to breaking up. Um, But we just sat down one day and thankfully we had the, you know, at least the the common sense to talk about it and just say, you know, we need help. We need help. We need someone to come in and help us navigate 
this thing and find this brotherhood again because we love music. We love playing in bands. That's why we've done it our whole life for free. And now we have this great opportunity. Like we can't just throw it away and we're making noise at this point. Now we're like a global band. And so if we do this out of selfishness and out of ego, we're letting down all the people who jumped on the ship with us, all the people that love the band, all the fans. And we just wanted to do the right thing instead of the stupid thing and let the egos get in the way. So, you know, we, we, we went and got help and we worked with therapists and we, we figured it out. We we regained that brotherhood. They gave us tools to use to be able to get through some of these other moments that we faced in the years to come as we got into the two thousands and then the 2010s and all that. And so, yeah, we always trip up and we have our issues, but we've, we know how to navigate through them. Now we know that sometimes the right thing to do is to communicate and just talk it through other times. If it's really rough waters, we know to give people their space because they're humans. We're all four different guys from four different lives and backgrounds. Sometimes people just need space. And then we circle back, we talk about it and we get through it. So to know that, you know, we had that kind of perseverance as a unit beyond what I had as an individual creating the band is really something that I, and I think all the guys are extremely proud of. You talk about the fans and the music being a part of their lives and not wanting to let them down. You're also a music fan. There's no way you can do what you do without being a person that is inspired by music from a fan perspective. So give me a song that you think is perfectly written that somebody else wrote that you just go, God, I wish I wrote that song. The perfect song. I could be so obvious and cliche here, or I could be very artistic. You could be both. Give me two. It's fine. Well, I think everybody knows maybe one of the most perfect songs ever written in the world for rock music is Stairway to Heaven. It just is. It is what it is. And even if you did rip off that beginning riff, Jimmy, I don't give a fuck. You did a good (laughs) job with that shit. (laughs) And it wasn't, listen, I even heard, I don't know if you have, but I even heard the original piece that they talked about that was a copyright infringement. And it literally is a speck of that entire epic ballad that Zeppelin put together. So he heard a melody within a few notes of someone else's song and he was inspired by it and created this, you know, whole amazing legendary rock song. And as a writer, I I have to respect that because, you know, maybe he could have changed the key or changed a couple of notes Um, But it really is a very, very, very small part of the intro to that song. Um, But if you think about that song, I mean, a a gorgeous, beautiful acoustic opening. And then, you know, John Paul Jones comes in with these really beautiful flute lines. And the melody is gorgeous. The the lyrics are mysterious. And... um, captivating you know and then it just keeps ramping up and up and up until it gets to this incredibly powerful guitar solo and jam at the end where they're all kind of reaching for this like finale for it all to just kind of explode and go back down to 
to where it started in the beginning. Like to me, that truly is a masterpiece. As, as much fun people make of that song, right? Because it's probably the most overplayed song on rock radio in the world. It, there's a reason why it's overplayed. Like that song is a fucking masterpiece. So it's like if I sex were a song. Yeah, All that, that is, especially now, you know, being a, a seasoned songwriter, I listen to that again and I go, man, you know, that's, I would still love to have had written that song. Like that's the song I'd super be proud of till this day, only because as I've grown, it hasn't been about a very narrow minded kind of rock music. Like our earlier music, we were just learning. I was trying to figure out how to write music. So it was very simple. And maybe that's part of what made it work, but it was also very, I don't know, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't very experienced sounding. Right. But as I've grown into my later years and become more experienced as a writer in the, in the solo stuff and all that, I like the orchestrated more epic versions of stuff. And that to me fits right in that category. What band has a song for every single feeling and emotion in your life? One band that, that's, that's, that you turn to in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Who's that artist for you? Pink Floyd. Really? Yeah. Pink Floyd is the most dynamic and eclectic band I've ever listened to and is, is one of my, I don't even know in the top three, five, where they would fit, but they're there. They're in that block Um, because they just have everything that I want to hear. If I want to feel energetic and rock music, they have tracks for that. If I want to feel sleepy and chill, they have songs for that. If I want to fucking eat mushrooms and go on a journey, which I don't, um, they still take me on a journey, right? Um, They just have everything, man. It's just, it's a world of music. They really take you on a journey. And I'm just a big fan of that stuff. I would love... Obviously, it's never going to happen for those guys to figure it out and to see them play Fuck. in the sphere in Vegas. Oh. Yeah. oh, my God. That would be amazing. Yeah. That would be amazing. Although I will say that even though it wasn't the original Pink Floyd, I did get to see Roger Waters do the wall in the Staples Center in L.A. And I got to tell you, man, it's mind blowing, mind blowing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the the sphere in Vegas would be an amazing choice. I mean, they could take us through a world, you know that. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a quick story. One of my ex-girlfriends um, was from Venice, Italy. And she told me when she was a teenager in Venice, Pink Floyd came there and built a stage on one of the, what do you call them, the like the rafts or the platforms that what do they call those when they put it out on the water and they shoot fireworks from barge, barge whatever. Yeah. They created a show where they played on the water, but the laser show and the light show was designed under the water to shoot up out of the water. So those guys just continue to reinvent like epic artistic shows that I don't know how anyone, I don't care who it is. You can take your grandparents to go see Pink Floyd and they'll blow their minds. There's you know? a, there's a lot of adaptations to Broadway and that kind of stuff with your acting and the music has has something like that 
ever been put on your radar to do? Well, acting, I've done a bunch of. I, I didn't get really anything big yet to brag about, like on a major feature with major actors. I've done some pretty cool stuff. I did some crappy indies, but I think everyone has. Um, but I got some decent smaller roles with, you know, pretty decent sized actors like um, Tom Sizemore, uh, you know. So I, if I have more opportunities to do things like that, I'd love to because I really do love being in a character, um, I just think it's fun. And the more I've learned about it, the better I've gotten at it. So I'd love to be able to continue to take stabs at that and get some shots at some better roles. No, I mean, I mean the music part of it, like working on music for movies, music for plays. No, not unless it's just a song that we write that they're going to use as like a title track or an end title. Um, because I don't want to get into like Trent Reznor world where like you're scoring for movies that's really fucking tedious work. And as much as I love being in the studio, I don't love being in the studio because it's just long hours. You, you're just a, I'm a super perfectionist. So like I drive myself fucking crazy with no, that little ting needs to be a half a fucking DB low. You drive everybody else crazy too, you know? (laughs) I just, I, I, I don't think I would go down that world because that's a, an incredible, tedious job. And I don't even think the money justifies, you know, <laughs> what, what they get to do the amount of work. And then the director sends it back. Now we need this short and we need this longer. And I want to do, you know, oh, fuck that. No, <laughs> that's a no. Well, 2024 is going to be an awesome year for you professionally. Obviously, you know that I know your daughter and watching you be this doting dad now kind of a trip like she's getting almost to the age where i met you and it's making me feel old yeah yeah it's true yeah she's gonna be 22 now and um she's got her own career that she's starting she's finishing her college business degree and then she's off to the races she may go west i think next year because her and a boyfriend want to go to the west coast and try to develop like a clothing line and do some stuff in the industry So I'm just helping open up my Rolodex to some contacts I've had over the years that can help her in that world. Um, And I'm super proud of her. I think she's heading in the right direction. She has an incredible relationship going. This dude is a solid fucking guy. I better be because he knows what's going to happen to him if he's not. You know what? I don't even have those thoughts because he's that solid. He's such a good dude. He was just raised right. He's so polite and respectful. He loves her to death. It's like, I I don't even have to go up to him and threaten him. <laughs> he's just, he's already there, man. So I, I'm their biggest cheerleader and I hope they go the distance. Um, I'm just curious gonna... what would happen to you if, if she eclipses you. You've had a lot of success in your career. I want to watch hope... the old man watch her eclipse you. I would love that. I really would. I hope she goes above and beyond anything that I've done in my life but I just hope that she's happy throughout the whole thing because success can be very confusing and very painful and very disappointing and very betrayal. Like there's so many things that happen when you get super success. I I haven't even considered myself a super success. Not when you put what we've done up against the Lady Gaga's and the Rolling Stones and the anything like that, right? Those like elite kind of celebrities 
I'm sure it's even more complicated because they're never left alone, right? They can't even go to Starbucks without getting like the paps on them. So whatever she does, man, I just hope she's happy. I hope she finds whatever it is that she's striving for, why she wants to be successful. And I'm just here to support her and help guide her to make, you know, maybe not make some of the mistakes I made. Hopefully she's going to be surrounded by people that 25 years later, like you and I, can talk about supporting each other through each other's careers all the totally. time. Yep, I think, exactly. I think maybe we need to go out for meatballs. Uh, I, you know, we've been talking about that for a while. If we start looking towards whatever's next, you know, maybe, I don't know where you're at right now. I know you're doing this awesome podcast, and thank God because you're one of the few New Englanders that kept the spirit of what AAF did alive, and I, I know people must love hearing you even if it's on a streaming platform versus the radio so good for you on that man and we love having you here um but i think if this is if you don't know if this is the thing or maybe there's something that you're aiming towards and this is becoming a a a diving board for that um i don't know what that is for me i'm not sure what mine is but if we figure it out let's call each other make sure it's about 11 o'clock at night (laughs) and then you know if we have the plan Like, this is what I want to do, and this is what I'm going to do. We're going to go for the fucking meatballs. We got to shake on it over the meatballs. We got to shake on the meatballs. Well, the radio thing is is going great. I think it's like 40 stations now. Nice. And the podcast is in like 149 countries. Awesome, man. It's crazy to see, like, who the hell in Brazil knows who I am? Or like, where are these people in Germany coming from? And for anybody that found the podcast because of this episode, you heard the intro and the intro song is your way of supporting my latest endeavor because I called you and said, Sully, I need a song. I need an intro for my podcast. And you you still use it? Of course. It's my theme song. Nice, man. I love that. It's my theme song for everything. Cool. So for anybody that that is new to the show, first of all, welcome. And second of all, the intro music that you hear, the outro music of every episode of the podcast is a song that you wrote and recorded for me to use for my show. So I did. thank yep. you for the support right back. Nice. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm so glad we got to catch up. Me too, man. It's been a long time coming. This yeah. is this was perfect. I've seen you at shows, obviously, and we see each other, but to sit down and be able to actually talk about real life stuff without ten thousand people interrupting us and walking in the room is pretty awesome. Yeah, totally, man. Friends for life. You know I'm always here for you. And uh I'm sure it's the same it is on the other so you know, this is what we do and we did it, man. You know, the meatballs <laughs> They worked. They fucking worked. What's the name of the place again? El Camino? El Camino in Lemonster, yeah. If you guys are listening or anybody's going to El Camino, let them know. Let the owners know. They don't even know that they have a superpower. Their meatballs allow people to capture their careers and dreams. So when shout we, out to El Camino in Lemonster, Mass. When we do have that next meatball date, we got to bring cameras because people, <laughs> people need to experience the meatballs with us. I mean, we got to bring cameras. We've, they're built into our fucking phones now. <laughs> <laughs>
That There's is fucking true. QR codes on the fucking tables for menus. You have to bring a fucking camera. I can't believe we didn't take a picture that day. Like, we have no picture from the meatball day. We have nothing. No, no but we have the memory. That's right. Well, if you end up doing that second documentary, which you kind of have hinted that maybe carrying on the Godsmack story and doing a documentary oh. about the band. Yeah. If you want to. That'll re- happen. If you want to yeah. reenact the meatball story, I'm sure the guys <laughs> at El Camino would be totally fine with the camera crew in the dining room. Yeah, no, that 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 story will happen for sure. I don't know when and it's going to take a little while to put that one together for sure. But um the reason we haven't even started doing it yet is because we're still in it and we don't know yeah. where it ends. <laughs> That's why I haven't started my book yet. Yeah. Cause I there just, I don't know. I don't know what the end chapter would be yet. Right. Sometimes like what I did with a documentary is you'll just find the end within the story you want to tell. And, it, and then your book will just be from this date to that date. And it may not have to go all the way to present. Cause then, you know, you need some other stuff to come up with later follow up. Well, hopefully someday I'll have my own documentary and I'll call you and go, I need you to sit down and do an interview for my documentary. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's one of the things I'll do. Maybe I'll set up a podcast in the studio and just start telling war stories. I don't know oh, why shit. you haven't done that already, dude. I don't, I don't know, know why. if I can. Oh, boy. I think the statute of limitations. I got sure to make sure the band's broken up fully before that shit <laughs> Because I for sure will create fucking divorces. <laughs> happy New Year. Same to you. Happy holidays. Ozzy also says happy holidays. <laughs> there he is, the one and only Sully Erna from Godsmack, who also appeared on episode 39 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And if you want to go back and listen to that episode, check the links in the show notes of this episode. In the links, you'll also find the link to I Stand Alone, the Sully Erna documentary that's available to watch on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and Google Play. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that's filled with my guest music and all the songs and artists that we referenced in the interview. You'll also find all the links to find Sully, The Scars Foundation, Godsmack, and all the Mistress Carrie links too. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday we run down all your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates in around five minutes with the sit wrap. Join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And of course, you can always find me on the radio. Get the details on all that and more at mistresscarry.com. And don't forget to do your last minute holiday shopping there too. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 